Good morning, friends and members, and welcome to the podcast service of the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau, where we have been in existence for 151 years. Since 1870, this church has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in north-central Wisconsin. I am delighted you joined us this morning or whenever you happen to be listening to this service, and I'm equally delighted to be joined this morning by Donica and Margaret and Julie. I encourage you now to gather your hearts and minds for a time of worship. If you're following along at home, you're welcome to review your order of service and join me in reading our opening chalice lighting. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. If you're following along, you can join in singing our opening hymn, for the earth forever turning.
Once upon a time, there was a man known far and wide for his generosity. One day, sitting with his friends, sipping coffee in the village square, a poor woman approached him with a small request for money to feed her child. Of course, he replied, and without hesitation, plucked coin after coin out of his pocket, piling them into the woman's hand until they spilled onto the ground. Overwhelmed with his show of kindness, the woman began to weep. She bowed her head in gratitude. May Allah bless you, sir. You have saved my child's life. She carefully placed the coins in a small cloth sack. Glancing up one last time, she thanked him with a frail half-smile. When she was out of earshot, the man's friends began to question him. Why did you give her so much money? asked one. That was foolish. Don't you think she'll tell all of her friends? asked another. A line of beggars will be at your door tomorrow morning, warned a third. Just yesterday you gave your charity, said a fourth. You weren't obliged to give her anything. Why did you do it? The generous man kept silent until their angry questions ran their course. And at last, they quieted down, and he said, While such a poor woman may be pleased with just a little money from me, said the generous man, I couldn't have been. He looked from friend to friend. Unless I give her what I am able to, I won't be happy. She may not know me, but I know myself. And the group of men, thoughtful and feeling a bit sheepish, said no more about it. And now we'll sing our children's song. I'd like to invite you now into a spirit of prayer and meditation. Take a moment to center yourself as is your custom, and let us journey into silence together with this prayer. Loving, sustaining spirit of hope, our cup of gladness cannot be full until all our brothers and sisters can rejoice with us in a whole and perfect world. We ask that you send healing to all those with broken hearts, that you mend all broken relationships, broken bodies, and broken minds. Give wisdom and patience to those who make laws and to those who enforce and interpret them. Bring peace to those at war, comfort those who mourn, give strength to the weary, and guide the steps of those who do not know where to find you. And for ourselves we ask, 
Help us to be humble and curious and open. And let us learn the patient practicing of your holy love for all creation and every thought and word and action. And now let us meditate for a moment in silence together now. Amen. morning's reading is the poem In Winter by Michael Ryan. The poet writes, at four o'clock it's dark. Today looking out through dusk at three gray women in stretched slacks chatting in front of the post office, their steps left and right and back like some quick folk dance of kindness. I remembered the winter we spent crying in each other's laps. What could you be thinking at this moment? How lovely and strange the gangly spines of trees against a thickening sky as you drive from the library humming off key. Or are you smiling at an idea met in a book the way you smiled with your whole body the first night we talked? I was so sure my love of you was perfect and the light today reminded me of the winter you drove home each day in the dark at four o'clock and would come into my study to kiss me despite mistake after mistake after mistake. Therein ends our reading.
In the second book of the Hindu Upanishads, the greater gods ask the lesser gods, the devas and the asuras, to be more compassionate and to exercise self-control whenever they have dealings with humankind. The lesson, even the gods need to be reminded to play nice. These ancient Hindu texts would be picked up some 8,000 years after they were written by T.S. Eliot, a St. Louis, Missouri-born grandson of a Unitarian minister. By the early 1920s, Eliot had moved to England, and, and he was in the midst of a flurry of creative output. He was also suffering a dark night of the soul, wrestling with his faith that would eventually result in him requesting a trade from Team Unitarian to Team Anglican. But before this happened, Eliot lived through a spiritual storm in the midst of a world recovering from the death and destruction of World War I. And so by war's end, Eliot had grown disturbed by what he perceived as a culture that had grown dangerously selfish and self-centered. Eliot went so far as to suggest that people in general seemed morally bankrupt, emotionally barren, and lacking in purpose. These strong feelings were a reaction to modernism, which dominated much of the 19th and 20th centuries. Modernism isn't any one thing, of course. It's a philosophical movement, an art movement, but in many ways it came to define the era. As many of you know, the era we live in is widely understood as the postmodern one. There are a lot of differences between the eras, but one of the things they share is this, an obsession with rugged individualism. Eliot's The Wasteland is brilliant and totally anti-rugged individualism. It's also super grumpy and filled with critique. It's basically a poetic version of a guy who yells, Get off my yard! to everyone who walks past his house. And this shouldn't be surprising, as we now know the dude was having a super stressful year. But there's also a lesson here. Write poems when you're pissed off, and you might just win a Nobel Prize one day. So there's Eliot, a grumpy, agnostic, poet, immigrant, living in the wake of a devastating war in the midst of an era that he thought was totally selfish, excessive, and immoral. And then one day he picks up a copy of the Upanishads and reads the gods who say this. Data, diadvam, damyata. In English, these words mean give, be sympathetic, and surrender control. Eliot would weave these words into the wasteland, and some people regard them as a sort of roadmap for how we can escape the weariness of living in a world that is beset with individualism, selfishness, carelessness, and a never-ending desire to dominate. Eliot's poem endures today because the sense of loneliness, dread, and dissolution it captures is something honest people will admit is present in all of us. I don't know that it's fair to say that our problems are any better or worse than another era's, but I do know that we have problems. Just this past week, I read about conspiracy theories and the crazy things people will do to defend lies. I read about the emotional toll isolation is having on young learners, especially disadvantaged kids who rely on school for safety, nutrition, and mental health. 
I read a new report that said hate crimes in the U.S. are at a 10-year high. I read a psychologist who said people increasingly say they're lonely even when they're with other people and that their lives feel empty even though people claim to be busy all the time with calendars overfilled with appointments and obligations. Maybe you're one of the lucky ones and none of this sounds familiar, in which case my advice is that when you're done listening to this, get up and go next door because your neighbor might be stuck in a downward spiral. They might be missing school. They might be hungry, depressed, lonely, and empty. That's our world, dear friends. That's us. Eliot believed that what paved the way for these negative aspects was when human value got linked with productivity. In other words, he thinks things went downhill when personal value was moved from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of the world. Rather than thinking about our lives as being in relationship to a higher purpose, to others, to causes, to religions, the focus became the self as a product that thinks in the ways of the world, which then, as now, is obsessed with efficiency and outward appearances. And this, of course, is the violation of pretty much every major religion and positive ethical philosophy. Eliot's poem is concerned that our culture has become obsessed with individuality, with I, with me. Now, I want to be sure and say that I don't think focusing on yourself is an altogether bad thing. Most everything exists on a spectrum, so of course, some good is here aside the bad. And it's also safe to say that it's exciting in today's world to think about who we want to become because we have every imaginable tool to think about the individual we want to be. And it's natural and necessary even to want to know who we are. Know thyself, Socrates said. If we didn't take listening and learning from our life and living seriously, we'd likely never know what makes us feel honored and truly seen, what makes us feel pride or shame, what for us is uniquely right or wrong. And these bits of self-understanding are vital But even in admitting all of that, I don't think it's a stretch to say there's a lot of ego strutting around these days. A lot of people who think mistakes are things other people do. Mark Leary is a psychology professor at Duke University, and he recently published some research that asked this question, and I quote, Think about all the disagreements you've had in the last six months. So go ahead. Think about all the disagreements you've had in the last six months. What percentage of the time do you think that you were right? The average response was 66%. In other words, we're all shouting at each other across the social and political divides, and nothing's changing because we're not listening. We're not listening because we think the chances that we're wrong is only 30% likely, and I'm 100% certain all of us are wrong a lot more than three out of every 10 disagreements. Also, if you're a math whiz, 66 plus 66 is more than 100%, which makes our assumption about how right we are a mathematical impossibility. Humility is in short supply which means genuine curiosity about people is in decline, too. And we should do right by one another, which means we need to accept that we are limited 
And then we need to learn to love ourselves and others in spite of this. During the time Eliot was writing The Wasteland, he was in between faiths, a spiritual purgatory of sorts. And as I mentioned, Eliot was raised in a very classical Unitarian environment that looks a lot more traditional and Christian than it does today. Eliot's grandfather, William Greenleaf Eliot, founded the Unitarian Church in St. Louis as the Church of the Messiah. And on Greenleaf Eliot's headstone in the beautiful Bell Fountain Cemetery, it reads simply this, looking into Jesus. T.S. Eliot's worldview was no doubt shaped by his religious upbringing, but also by his experiences in England during the First World War. The view put forth in the wasteland is this. Everyone would be better served if we rejected the Pollyannish, rose-colored belief that people can be perfected. We should reject the idea that we can treat ourselves like a product that needs an upgrade from time to time. Eliot thought we needed to accept that humankind is selfish, that we can be self-destructive and shallow, and because of this, we need to surrender to the truth of life as it is. This act of faith, this giving up the illusion that we're in control of every little thing is what will actually set us free. And then in this freedom, we'll live more humbly with grace and love for ourselves and for others too, beyond petty things that divide us within and divide us without. Eliot points toward this freedom in his poem by invoking the ancient Upanishads and the gods who thundered, give, and sympathize, and surrender. Eliot thinks we need to find a story bigger than our own little story. We need a bigger story because if all we do is think about ourselves and talk about ourselves, our power, our prestige, our possessions, we first of all become boring and uninteresting. Nobody likes the guy or the gal at the party that just rattles on about themselves. If all we do is focus on what matters to us, what feels good to us, what irritates us, we risk becoming selfish, impatient, fearful, and narcissistic. And worse, living mostly for yourself, caring mostly about yourself, can actually make you neurotic. Psychologists note that people who fail to find the story of their lives in connection with the greater story often end up showing destructive, pathological behaviors. The wasteland matters today because its fear of selfishness and rigidness and a lack of humility and curiosity are just as destructive today as they've always been. What's unique for us is that these self-obsessions are now being fused with group identities that, like many people, can be rigid, judgmental, destructive, and as we've seen recently, they can turn deadly. Republican, Trump supporter, QAnon, Democrat, pro-BLM, anti-BLM, conservative, liberal, Methodist, UU, and so on. Belonging to a group can be a wonderful thing. But it's not a wonderful thing when our associations cause us to grip onto the boundaries and identities and every conceivable definition and category that sets us apart from others rather than focusing on searching for a larger story that nudges us into contact spiritually and physically with God, with something greater than ourselves. Authentic religion encourages us to develop practices and relationships that teach us to let go 
of our small selves. All those rigid boundaries and that common assumption we have that we're always right. Because the fact is this, we're often wrong. And if you can't remember the last time you apologized, you're in a sorry state. In the words of the English mystic Julian of Norwich, the goal of religious practice is to experience a oneing with God, a oneing with nature and the divine. Julian of Norwich says, and I quote, the love of God creates in us such a oneing that when it is truly seen, no person can separate themselves from another person. And in the sight of God, all persons are one, and one person is all people, and all people are in one person. That's Unitarian Universalism's first principle put poetically. And when the thunder spoke, it said, give, sympathize, and surrender. And so what does it mean to give? It starts with obituary virtues. To live as if everything we do will end up etched on our headstones. In other words, our days shouldn't be spent thinking about how right we are, but rather in consideration of how we can better live and give from the heart and true freedom. And what does it mean to sympathize? It means we recognize that rugged individualism is a lie. So stop assuming we're the center of the universe because this self-obsession tricks us into thinking we're free when really this self-deception builds a prison around our hearts and minds that makes it harder for us to get out and for others to get in. The truth of the matter is that we need each other. And finally, what does it mean to surrender control? There's an old saying that man without God is like a seed in the wind blowing about that never touches the ground or grows. Everyone needs roots, a place to call home. The 12 Steps Recovery Program has helped millions find a better life and a sense of community. After honesty and faith, the third step is surrender, to admit we can't go it alone. This act of surrender is an acceptance that all of us are mysteries to ourselves and others as well. If there's anything in your life you're thankful for, truly thankful for, I'm willing to bet it's because someone loved you despite mistake after mistake after mistake. We are a paradox, possessed with power and possibility for both good and terrible things. Maybe if we accepted our inherent paradoxical selves, we'd lose interest in the constant conflict, conflict with ourselves and others, and instead start to accept life as it is rather than trying to control it all the time. In the past seven days, I officiated funerals for two kind, honest men. One died young and the other lived to 102. The dead often teach me lessons, and here's what I learned from them both. Life is a gift that we did nothing to earn. Nothing. Love the gift of your life and make your life a gift to others. If you feel like you're stuck in a wasteland and you're looking for a way out, here's some 8,000-year-old advice. Give, sympathize, and surrender. Amen. You're welcome to join in singing now our closing hymn.
spirit of life. And Sexton wrote, Look to your heart that flutters in and out like a moth. God is not indifferent to your need. You have a thousand prayers, but God has one. Dear friends, the mission and ministries of the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau is made possible only by the support of its friends and members. I ask now that you look into your heart and consider what you are able to give maybe a one-time gift, maybe a sustaining gift, and then head on over to our website to see how you can make that gift possible. I thank you in advance and invite everyone to sing and join in singing our doxology. Let 
May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away.